Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hudson Institute. Uh, and uh, today is a very focused program, so I'm going to keep the preliminaries to an absolute minimum. Uh, ben Judah has been working with us and has penned a, uh, a uh, report. I don't want to call it a white paper because it's too vivid to be called a white paper, but we have think tanked it. We've think tanked it with, I think, over 100 footnotes. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a serious thing, and anybody who wants to challenge any of the contention should first go to the footnotes, of course. Uh, I'd like to say that our, our team also, and thank our team uh, who helped a lot with the footnotes and helped Ben with various aspects of the research of this. And uh, I think everyone was involved. So <coughs> Nate Sibley, Belinda Lee, Natalie Duffy, uh, and Peter Podkopayev and Vika, whose last name I can't pronounce very well. It starts with a K, but it's Russian. Um, is Vika here? Oh, okay. So how do I pronounce your last name? Oh, that I can't do. Yeah, you can see why I can't do that. All right. Uh, and um, and also uh, we need to thank David Tell, who is the head of public affairs here at Hudson who went through the report very carefully, vetting it, and uh, uh, put quite a bit of time into that. So um, without further ado, uh, and you have the, the, the schedule here on the back. It's not entirely clear. So uh, if you go to the, the back page of the little handout, uh, Ben Jude is going to present the report. Then I'm going to underscore uh, a few things in the report, one thing in particular, and then we'll go into a panel discussion which Benjamin Haddad from Hudson Institute is going to moderate. Uh, and we've sort of stacked the deck with, with Hudson insiders here uh, in terms of uh, Benjamin Haddad and Hannah Thoburn who's going to participate in the panel discussion. And then you may notice there's an empty chair here uh, Tom Firestone is going to join us about 10.15, and he will participate in the panel discussion. So thank you all for coming, and uh, here we go. Oh, actually, I should have introduced Ben, maybe. Should I introduce? Um, yeah, let me introduce Ben. Sorry about that, Ben. Um, uh, oh, no, because us I usually don't like introducing people because usually their bios are on the uh, program and all of that. But it doesn't say much about Ben here. And um, his, his book, Fragile Empire, is, is worth uh, underscoring a bit because it's truly an extraordinary book where Benjamin traveled, uh, Ben, sorry, traveled all over Russia. And this is a book that is hugely prized by the um, uh, middle-aged, and uh, the elder generation of Russia experts. I have never heard anyone say anything but praise about it. Uh, and Ben, as, as some of you may know, is, a, is an up-and-coming superstar in the UK and um, is someone I've known now for a few years and, and have enormous regard for. And Ben, a little bit like uh, Hudson Institute's Walter Russell Mead, uh, is both a journalist and a serious political intellectual. And this is a very rare combination. And so we are very uh, honored and delighted to have him here and that we were able to work with him on this report. Thank you.
Oh, thank you, Charles, for such a kind introduction. Thank you to the Hudson Centre for having invited me, and thank you to everyone on the on the programme who made this uh, report and this event uh, possible. Uh, I'd like to start our discussion about corruption with just trying to sort of shake out a lot of the, I think the attitude that the issue is still uh, approached with. If you say you're writing a report on corruption, you're working on a program to do with uh, corruption and kleptocracy internationally, typically you meet a sort of raised uh, eyebrows if this is a topic for sort of beardy, left-wing academics. It's a topic for, you know, the corner of academia, very much the last issue to be discussed in a sort of serious uh, uh, foreign policy uh, centre or discussion. And what we're trying to do with this programme, what we're trying to do with this paper is to really just sort of turn that view on its head and to show that not only can you not understand the world economy without placing corruption right at the heart of it. You can't understand contemporary authoritarians without placing corruption right at the heart of it. And you can't understand the contemporary foreign and domestic threats to the United States and the West without addressing uh, corruption. So what I'm going to talk about in over the next sort of half an hour as we sort of uh, lay the the sort of groundwork for our panel discussion is to go through those three points in kind. So why do I say that you can't understand the world economy without placing corruption and kleptocracy at uh, the heart of it? There's a sort of contradiction here. In one, one sense, we live in a world which is incredibly observed, where our phones are spying on us and calculating uh, uh, things about us in a hundred different ways while our sort of uh, bank cards are clocking up data and sending it to sort of uh, sending it to sort of various uh, companies. But as we are more observed and more tracked than ever before, money is less observed and less tracked than it's been at any point over the last sort of 70, 80, 90 years. One of the core features of the world economy now is that billions are traveling the world, circling the world, clicking through cyberspace, completely incognito. And that since the 1970s, there has been, first through the emergence of a serious, competent, powerful wealth defense industry in the United States, and as that spread internationally, there has been a giant boom in offshore finance. And the balance of power, the balance of scale between onshore and offshore finance has decisively tilted in favor of offshore. So when thinking about these gigantic sums that are sort of circling, uh, circling the world uh, incognito, how did we end up in that situation? I don't think we've quite appreciated just how powerful and just to what extent the wealth defense industry can truly shape the relationship of money and power in America and in Britain and in the West. Just like one fact I find very revealing is that 30 companies between 2008 and 2010 spent more money lobbying against paying tax in the United States than they paid in tax in the United States. 30 of the biggest uh, corporations uh, in, in America, uh, of course. And this has led to a situation where it's impossible to know for sure how much money is held offshore, 
but some 32 trillion is estimated to be, to be held uh, offshore. And this enormous shift in, in funds is having a very serious uh, impact on how our societies and how our political institutions uh, function. This wealth defense industry, following the end of the Cold War, has increasingly evolved into a corruption defense industry as it's internationalized and as that complex that makes it up of lawyers, bankers, accountants, PR uh, agents and executives have taken on clients from you know, the frontiers of globalization from Russia and China uh, and the Gulf. So a couple of facts that I think are very revealing of this is if you look at the British Virgin Islands, one of the great centers of offshore finance, some 40% of funds are from the People's Republic uh, of China. And if we want to think about how offshore has tilted the wealth of emerging uh, economies or submerging economies, depending on whether you want to be funny or not, um, some 50% of all of Russia's wealth is now held offshore. Some 30% of all African wealth is now held off, uh, is now held, uh, uh, is now held uh, offshore. We like to believe that the mechanisms in place in the sort of global offshore industry that could check against this money having been stolen money, money that's sort of uh, the products of corruption, money that's the products of theft are, are strongly uh, in place. In fact, KYC, the know your client practices in offshore finance have decisively broken down. I would go as far as to say that they are largely inexistent. Now, don't take my word for it. Take the word of the, the World Bank, that sort of famous sort of left-wing sort of campaigning Corbynite institution. Out of uh, the World Bank's uh, recent survey of 102 incorporation, uh, 102 incorporation uh, uh, agents which create uh, offshore companies where wealth can pass through, 42 out of 102 of them were setting up uh, such companies without uh, any without any of the correct documents, without doing any proper KYC, which means that the money could come from terrorists, the money could come from uh, sort of criminals, the money could come from corrupt officials. A project called the Global Shell Games contacted 4,000 um, incorporation uh, agents uh, worldwide. And these uh, incorporation agents were contacted by academics posing as sort of Al-Qaeda-ish figures posing as corrupt officials from China and Russia, really posing as sort of almost cartoons. Now, out of these 4,000 incorporation agents, 1,000 were ready to set up offshore companies without any documents at all, without any information at all as to where the money was coming from. So what we've described in the report is how these trends, the growth of offshore, the non-existence of KYC offshore, have created a looting machine. It's not my phrase, it's a phrase of, uh, of uh, Tom Burgess, who's a brilliant journalist who's uh, worked on this issue for many years. It's created a looting machine where authoritarians, kleptocrats, criminals, you know, real predatory forces in the non-democratic world are laundering their money via financial institutions embedded within uh, the West. Now, these sums 
are enormous. These sums are, so, uh, these sums are eye-wateringly uh, large, so large that they are fundamental to understanding the world economy. Now, sort of uh, GFI estimates that one trillion a year is leaving developing countries in illicit financial flows and entering the West. So that one trillion, I think it's always very important when you're talking of huge numbers to sort of humanize them. That one trillion illicit financial flows is made up of perhaps not a trillion, but many, many, many individual sort of acts of, uh, acts of theft. This is money stolen from African healthcare budgets. This is money pilfered from the coffers of Russia's sort of HIV AIDS budget. This is money sort of robbed from uh, China's sort of health uh, standards uh, boards. This is money that has uh, vanished from sort of states in the Middle East that uh, can't even be bothered to provide basic amenities to their oppressed and angry uh, citizenry. Now that trillion is not anonymous, empty cash. And that trillion is not entering the West for, uh, through sort of inhuman, sort of mathematical uh, uh, structures. That trillion is entering the sort of developed world through a class of enablers, through the wealth, the hands of the wealth defense industry and that part of it which has become a corruption defense industry. All of these individual acts of money laundering passing through that global looting machine have been enabled by British lawyers, French accountants, American, American bankers, sort of, uh, uh, sort of German sort of PR executives, which are better than you, you think in today's uh, world. And it's, we need to sort of really place that at our hearts of our, our analysis of, uh, of, these of these trends, is that there is a, a giant flow of money not only traveling incognito around the world, there's a giant flow of stolen money passing around the world via Western financial institutions with Western, ha with Western hands helping it. So what does that mean, because we're in a esteemed foreign policy center, what's that mean for understanding foreign policy? It's when I sort of uh, was invited to begin sort of working on this paper by, by Charles, I decided to have a look at Mr. Kennan's famous doctrine, sort of outlining sort of the sources of, uh, so the sources of Soviet conduct. And it, even now, it's a sort of uh, such a clear, it's such a pointed uh, essay on how the sort of Stalinist uh, elite was uh, ruling Russia in the 1950s. And I tried to imagine if an American diplomat was going to write the sources of Putinist conduct, if he was going to write the sources of uh, the contemporary sort of Chinese conduct or Gulfy conduct, the document would have nothing in common with what Kennan wrote, because Kennan's sources of Soviet conduct is entirely based on Russian history, on Russian political institutions, all onshore factors. There's no mention of offshore shell companies, there's no mention of uh, Western enablers, there's no mention of uh, sort of foreign, uh, foreign banks. And it would be impossible today to describe the sources of Putin's conduct or um, sort of the Sheikh of Qatar's conduct without those being right at, the, right at the heart of it. Now, over the last year, we've learned 
more and more, thanks to leaks, thanks to studies, thanks to the sort of Mossack Fonseca and um, sort of revelations, just to what extent that the elites of authoritarian and kleptocratic countries are deeply embedded in these, uh, in this looting machine. And this is not just changing the ease of which a society can be pillaged, this is changing those elites' relationships and psychological approaches to uh, the West. To go back to Kennan's time, the Soviet elite would encounter the West as journalists on the ground, as diplomats, as uh, individuals um, you know, representing sort of boards of trade, coming to sort of show off American washing machines at, uh, in the palace of the Soviets, maybe a few traitors. But the Soviet elite would not encounter the West on the large scale as a wealth defense industry and a corruption defense industry willing, desperate to take their money in to help them enter into the Western political structure. Just to illustrate how things have changed, let's take one individual who was very much a, a man of the Soviet elite. Let's take Mr. Nazarbayev, who has been the sort of a, the autocrat, the despot of uh, Kazakhstan since uh, it was still part of the Soviet Union. So how is Mr. Nazarbayev experiencing the West? Well, in one sense, he's experienced it was all of the hard work done by Western diplomats uh, on the ground, sort of finger-wagging and chiding him for corruption. But more majorly, he also experiences the West as Tony Blair offering to do consulting for him and offering to open doors in London and to sort of whitewash his image. He's experiencing the West through a former Austrian chancellor offering to sort of take him into the, the heart of Brussels. So his experience... Uh, of the West is Western politicians being his willing enablers, Western bankers, Western uh, accountants, Western, law Western lawyers willing to take him in to help him through the looting machine, to help him take money out of his country, illegitimately earned money, and to place it in, uh, in, the, in the West at the very sort of heart of it, in, in London, in, uh, in London, in France, in the, in the United States. And that has led to a psychological shift in which the ambassadors on the ground are not taken seriously. Western values are not perceived as real. Western values are perceived hypocritically because of how he sees and experiences uh, the, the Western uh, elite. So that's the story of an individual. Why would I argue that this is a fundamental foreign policy sort of disaster of our, of our times. Now, if you sit down and you read the US National Security Strategy 2015, which you should, it's an interesting, it's an interesting document, summarizes uh, the administration's view on the world, you'll find that corruption is mentioned a lot. It's mentioned more than North Korea. Corruption is referenced in relation to stopping Africa development challenging the integrity of the global financial system. Corruption is referenced in as being a sort of corrosive factor in sort of achieving development and in sort of help in blocking international institutions. But none of it's tied together. There's no mention of the looting machine. There's no mention of how all of this corruption is linking through offshore and uh, Western, uh, Western enablers. Now, if we can start to go through the fundamental foreign policy crises 
of our time. We start to see that corruption is really at the very, the very heart of it. Let's take, let's take the Arab Spring. Let's take you know this enormous disaster of our uh, of our times. And I'm going to give you a few figures you might not be very familiar with. Gaddafi, estimated worth 200 billion, located and laundered through uh, the West. Hosni Mubarak, estimated wealth 700 billion, located and laundered through uh, the West. If you come to London, I can take you on a lovely tour and I can show you properties that were excellent properties that were the pro were, that belonged to the Mubaraks and that belonged to the Gaddafis. Mr. Bashar al-Assad, a bit, bit smaller, 1.5 billion, but still money taken out of these societies. And when we we frame them, we look at these societies, and we look at the reasons that they dissolved into blood. It's because states were not being built. Why were states not being built? Because the money was being ripped, ripped out of them, facilitated by Western structures. Now, if we look to, across America's southern border, and there was these sort of uh, amusing or dark comments about drugs in the debate uh, last, uh, last night. So we take... Colombia, where the United States has spent over 20 billion trying to battle uh, a drug war. A devastatingly depressing statistic uh, I'd like to share with you, which is that 97% of all drug trafficking profits in Colombia are laundered for European and American banks. Now we turn to the, the tragedy of Africa, the tragedy of underdevelopment. We'll find that more money is leaving Africa illicitly every year then it's coming in, in aid. And now, if we take an issue very close to my heart, very close to a lot of people in this room, so we look at Ukraine, and we look at the tragedy of Ukraine, which is a tragedy where a state failed to be built, which allowed uh, the, the country to be sort of predated upon by its elites and by foreign powers, and saw a series of revolutions break out with positive but also negative uh, consequences in some ways. I'd like to give you another statistic from Global Financial Integrity which is that between 2004 and 2013, Ukraine lost over 116 billion in illicit financial flows. Now, Ukraine's GDP is only 181 billion. So when you, we take another case of how the ease at which you can remove, uh, remove money from these, uh, these states is seriously impacting on Western, uh, uh, on Western foreign policy. Just because I don't want to talk about everything, got the got, got a, a panel I want to sort of argue in uh, and discuss with I'd like I'd like to come back to the essential now which is hopefully I've sort of persuaded you or maybe, maybe not that this is uh, a fundamental issue of our time now what's the fundamental device which is which is permitting it the looting machine seems very complicated it seems sort of mysterious thing there's bankers there's lawyers there's offshore there's mysterious sort of interlocking shell companies but actually, what's permitting it is what permits a criminal to operate on any level. Now, if I was a, uh, if I was a drug dealer, if I was a, if I was a hitman, if I was any sort of uh, nefarious and uh, illegal practitioner, it's the same as if I was a corrupt official. Because I'm a criminal, I can commit my crime. My problem isn't committing my, my crime. My problem isn't selling drugs. It's not being able to steal from the coffers of my country. My problem is how do I turn this dirty black cash that I've accumulated 
into clean white cash as quickly as possible. Why do I need to do, why do I need to do that? The quicker I can do that, I can transform it into new sources of activity, new sources of power. So the easier it is to launder the money, the safer I'll be, the longer I can operate, and the more powerful I will become. Which is why if we look at the offshore shell company, an offshore shell company is not a, it's not a, com it's not a company in the way that we would understand. It's a, com it's a company that provides uh, no goods and no services. It's simply a sort of legal, uh, de legal definition. And to even conceptualize it as such, I think is quite, uh, is quite, misle quite misleading because these are, in effect, mostly generated by computers interlocking shells and shells and shells and shells and shells and shells and shells. So there's no, these are, in fact, closer to secrecy codes which can then, which are, can be established by this sort of uh, established uh, offshore and then can be used to buy property and to set up a sort of uh, enterprise uh, within the West. So uh, I'd rather like to call them like, an, they are like anonymous, uh, they're anonymity uh, devices. And of course, an anonymity device is just what a, um, a criminal uh, needs. Right now at this kind of moment, and this painful moment in American foreign policy, there are a lot of things that cannot be achieved. You know, a lot of very, there are catastrophes in the Middle East, there are chances that were, were lost. <coughs> Trying to end the anonymous shell company is not a kind of hopeless quest. It's very achievable. Something that's very much within the power of the United States to, to aim at, and something that can have enormously beneficial downriver consequences. When we think of Ukraine, when we think of Africa, when we think of the Arabs, when we think of like what is underwriting and what is undermining state uh, state, stabi state stability uh, internationally, and I think that it's something that you know both sides of the of Congress and something that the next administration really needs. Uh, uh, to focus on. All right, well, thank you, Ben. Um, and uh, I'm convinced. Uh, and I think this, this is um, what, what Ben has given us is really a, a very comprehensive overview of this whole issue. Uh, now, I, I would like to um, d just focus on the possible solutions to this problem. And Within that set of possible solutions, I'm going to focus on only one issue, which is what uh, Ben ended with, which is this whole issue of shell corporations or, or anonymous companies. It's really Tom Firestone who will arrive soon, to my knowledge, who has suggested these be called anonymous companies because it, I mean, a shell company isn't terribly descriptive. So the term beneficial ownership, which is sometimes used in regards to this issue, you may have noticed Ben didn't use, I'm only mentioning it uh, because a lot of people in the know uh, use this term, but it's very non-descriptive and everyone can understand what an anonymous company uh, is and what that implies. So we like that term. Now, uh, in terms of getting rid of so-called shell companies, anonymous companies, I just wanted to underscore this point um, drawing on some of the experience we've had with this, discussing the issue with people 
in our government. Let me start with that, because when you talk to people in the State Department, especially the people in the intelligence, they said, yes, well, we butt up against this problem of anonymous companies, uh, people in the, in the Treasury, and then we've had quite a bit of contact with the FBI's relatively new international anti-corruption squads, and they emphasize that, yes, this, this is a problem uh, to, to, uh, that is somewhat uh, impenetrable for us. We saw with the Panama Papers, uh, I, I needn't say more on that, that these uh, anonymous companies kept popping up as the way of hiding things, a, a uh, means to achieve secrecy. Uh, we recently have had contact also with some of the private investigatory firms, um, and uh, uh, people there have told us that that's the one thing that they really butt up against is, is uh, corporate secrecy. So this is the elephant in the room, and, and it's why we emphasize it so much in this report, because there are all kinds of other Band-Aids that one can stick on the body but if, if the uh, anonymous corporation issue isn't, isn't dealt with, the, the rest isn't going to get the job done the way the world financial system is structured right now. So we can have little things here and there that'll give us the illusion that we're doing something about this problem, but unless we confront this particular issue, we're really avoiding uh, tackling the problem. And tackling this problem uh, would have uh, huge effects, and there seems to be a general consensus about that. So I think it's, it's very important that we, we keep that front and center, and we talk about other solutions uh, in an ancillary fashion, and no more. Now, now in terms of, uh, oh, before, before I make my last point, there are no arguments in favor of anonymous corporations, really. I mean, the corporation was created so that there could be limited liability and people would take risks without losing their houses or tractor or whatever if we go back in time. Uh, and even those in favor of anonymous corporations for whatever reasons uh, and the wealth defense industry, as Ben Judah referred, referred to it as, uh, don't have any positive arguments. So this is, it's truly a nefarious cancer that's sort of grafted into our financial system and into our um, political system little by little, starting really in the 1960s, and it's just gotten worse and worse, and it's time for some medical attention and surgery. In terms of how to accomplish this, well, federal legislation could do this in the U.S. So we have Delaware, we have Nevada, we have actually South Dakota, which has become a wonderful little secrecy jurisdiction. Uh, etc. And I would like to refer you to an article in the Financial Times last spring by Cara Scannell, which is really excellent, which in, a, in a, just a page, it outlines how the United States has become the world's number one secrecy jurisdiction. Not only the largest, but the most impenetrable. So we've become better than the Swiss at this. We've beat up on the Swiss. We've shut down their oldest private bank and a bunch of others, and uh, we've taken the business. So th obviously that poses all kinds of uh, uh, political problems. It seems to be medium, long term, and even shorter term if we're going to engage in such kind of activity. And the, the sort of credibility issue of the West that 
Ben Judah referred to is obviously not favored by uh, such a, a uh, position and such a reality. So some sort of federal legislation or action at the federal level could deal with this. And there are all sorts of arguments why you can't do that and technical uh, arguments and is this really, uh, shouldn't the states have this right, et cetera. Well, given the scourge that this has become, we can easily overcome that. And uh, we think there's growing appetite on the Hill for this. And we've had quite a bit of contact, which has increased during the course of this year, of uh, major congressmen and senators who are really getting behind this. So we think there's a, a lot of hope for uh, action on this front, I would say within the next um, year or two. So uh, thank you. Now we'll move on to um, the uh, panel discussion, which Benjamin Haddad is going to moderate. And hopefully we will soon be joined by Tom Firestone. Thank you very much, uh, Charles. I'm uh, Benjamin Haddad. I'm a research fellow here <coughs> at the Hudson Institute. And uh, thanks, Ben, for your eloquent presentation. We're going to have really a, a very interesting panel. Now, sometimes uh, when we do these panels to discuss a book or uh, a paper, uh, we have opposite views and you know some people opposing the paper. We, we don't have a pro-kleptocracy uh, speaker <laughs> on the panel. We could have gotten in touch with the Russian embassy, but. Uh, <laughs> But we do have a, a very, very impressive uh, group of people, all of whom are uh, actually involved with the kleptocracy, in a w the kleptocracy initiative here at Hudson Institute in a way or another. Um, now, obviously, you know, you've, you've seen Ben Judah. I'd just like to mention also his last book on London, This is London, that was a major bestseller in, uh, in the UK. So he's written a book on Russia and a book on London. So, you know, obviously we've managed to use this converging uh, expertise here. Um, Karen Dawisha is uh, the former director of the Haviger Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies at uh, Miami University, Ohio, and has also written uh, the, this book, Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia, which is, uh, I think, by far the most detailed and research uh, study on the issue of Russian kleptocracy, uh, a very important book um, you can find here. Uh, and we have Hannah Thoburn, who is a uh, research fellow here at Hudson Institute, who's are uh, in-house expert on, on Russia, uh, Ukraine, on you know, Eastern Europe, has written extensively, both from the national security perspective, but also uh, human rights and, and rule of law and domestic issues in, uh, in the region, has you know, lived in the, in the region as well. So you know, I, I'd like maybe to start with Karen. I think Ben has uh, spoken extensively of the global system that underpins these uh, kleptocracy issues. And I'd like maybe to focus a little bit on, on Russia and, and maybe you know, Russia uh, domestically before we turn to the United States and, and policy prescriptions with, with Hannah and, and Tom Firestone. Maybe uh, can you explain to us why this is so central, as, as Ben has mentioned actually when making the Kennan reference, why is this so central to understand the Russian regime today? Why is it kleptocracy not just a feature among others of uh, today's Russia, but really the central defining character of Putin's regime? Well, I'm happy to do that, although I have to say I came prepared to talk about the United States because that's where we're, <laughs> that's, that's the, I think, the huge impact of this uh, paper. And it's critical to understand um, that we don't have people in the wealth defense industry 
who set out to become the leaders of the corruption defense industry. And that's, that's the most important takeaway I think I have from this paper, that they didn't set out when they saw, and I think they saw Putin rise, in fact I know they did, very early became quite concerned about his links and his criminal ties in St. Petersburg. They were monitoring him, they were following him, they were um, checking the odometer in his uh, gifted Mercedes um, on Nevsky Prospect. Uh, they were watching him very closely. So what happened that suddenly he was able with others in that leadership circle to uh, so easily get the money out. I, I do think that one of the biggest takeaways from studying Putin's kleptocracy was the realization that the intelligence services of Britain and the United States for sure were fully aware of what they had in Russia. And I think the Russians themselves, those Russians, Putin and the people around him, most of whom came up through the KGB, really thought that they were always just trying to stay one step ahead of those intelligence services and that something was going to happen. They would never get away with it. And th they have been able to establish the kleptocracy beyond their wildest dreams. And one of the things that I thought was a very interesting point that um, the chairman of Kroll made yesterday, because Kroll ha had been hired by the Yeltsin regime to go after the money stolen by the CPSU and the KGB. So they've had accounts of this type for a long time. And one of the things that I found most interesting about what he said globally was that st starting with uh, Marcos and, st and with uh, the Duvalier regime, father and son, you know, they had stolen millions and they had ruined the chances of their, of their country. Well, now they're stealing billions. And the, these countries not only will never get up off their knees, but we will never be able to provide sufficient aid to replenish those lost sources. So we are, we are dooming ourselves as well to living in a swamp of our own creation. And the, the way that I think about this is that we have a situation in which the financial services industries worldwide, West in, in the West, but not only in the West, uh, Hong Kong and Sing Singapore have, and Dubai certainly, certainly kept up, uh, but it started in the West, that these financial services indu industries initially were formed to help their, the corporations in their own countries to structure their obligations, minimize their obligations, to their own governments for <coughs> taxes, right? So it was that everybody was on the same side of the table. With globalization and the opening of borders to the flow of capital, these industries, you know, in the old Leninist phrase, uh, went abroad in search of, <laughs> of markets. And boy, did they find them. So a well-established industry to, that was established to help 
good guys structure their taxes shifted from being a wealth defense industry to being a corruption defense industry. And this is the number one reason why I am not optimistic. All right? So I was reading in The Guardian this morning. Uh, an OECD study has come out uh, in which it is stated that global corporations worldwide annually avoid as much as $240 billion in taxes. This isn't, you know, uh, somebody trying to hide alimony from his wife, although that probably was an initial <coughs> great, great reason for setting up anonymous companies. And OECD is putting a lot of pressure on the United States to attach itself to the recommendations of this report. This isn't about corruption. This isn't about kleptocracy. This is about the, what, what I like to see as the horizontal division of the West between people who used to be all on the same side of the table to those who are now on different sides of the table, those who are serving above ground sovereign project of statehood and those who are in fact undermining the project of statehood mm. through the avoidance of, through the structuring of taxes. This would include Google, Apple, and those companies known and beloved by uh, the Europeans. And when we say that, that there are people on the Hill, there are in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but they're not dealing with America, they're dealing with kleptocracies. But unless we deal, deal with this problem in the United States, I don't see how it will ever be solved. So who, which, which, which committee do we look at most <coughs> in terms of running the budget? House Ways and Means. Who's the head of House Ways and Means? Paul Ryan, a politically very astute person, right, who surely imagines that he has a, a bright political future like socialism. Um, and this is Paul Ryan on October 8th, quoted in, in the OECD report. The o OECD is trying to grab a tax base, the tax base of our corporations. We want to make sure our treasury has a united front against this action. At the height of the political career uh, debate in this country, when one thing we can say in a very bipartisan way is that both the Democrats and the Republicans are facing electorates that believe that the system is rigged. And that the core basis of this is the, is the, is the role of lobbyists in structuring the tax base. And when Donald Trump is able to say, in a way that Hillary Clinton really didn't answer, wouldn't feel comfortable answering, perhaps, in the debate last night. Yeah, I took advantage of these things. You wrote the law. And this is, this is, this is Paul Ryan who sees the future in four years. And I, I think it's a, it is, to me, the most significant takeaway from this, from this uh, uh, paper, that we have, we have now created an, a global system in which we're not all on the same side of the table. And we can talk until we are blue in the face about, about stopping kleptocracy, but it's all just rubbish.
it's rubbish unless we do something about the structure of our own tax system. And of course that means campaign finance and you can go down that rabbit hole. But I, I, I think that that's the, for me, the, the, the single largest takeaway from this and, and why I'm, I'm not. Uh, I wish I were more optimistic and I wish I could think of a way in which this would happen in a different way. Uh, I do think that um, the political elites in, in the United States are going to have a difficulty um, not doing something about the tax system when they come to power. That's my statement on Russia. <laughs> um, thank you, uh, Karen. Hannah, are you as pessimistic, uh, especially when you look at the national security conversation here? Uh, let's not talk too much about the presidential uh, campaign and, and debate, but among experts in, in Washington, you know, coming from the last administration, I mean, the current administration and the next one, do you think there's a realization now that this is uh, a key issue? You know, so first, um, thanks to Charles and thanks to the Kleptocracy Initiative for setting this up. Um, I am a little bit more, I think, optimistic than perhaps Karen is. And I only say that I'm optimistic because I've seen in the past year or two a kind of increased awareness, both amongst the U.S. public, uh, as well as amongst the, the kind of expert and policy community here in D.C. and New York, that this is really a very, very big problem. And I think that part of what Karen was talking about that really gets to the heart of the problem, and perhaps the issues of tax or the issues of inequality that she mentioned was really part of what um, you see the, the public standing up and taking notice of. But what you also see is a kind of um, understanding and growing understanding, I think, amongst people here in D.C., amongst the policy community, amongst people in Europe as well, that this is also fundamentally about the integrity of our democracies. It's fundamentally about the integrity of the societies in which we live. And, you know, as I was reading Ben's report, so many of the things that he was, he was pointing out really get to what I think is a kind of terrible realization is that in many of these cases, you have people like Putin, you have um, leaders of Arab countries or African dictators, whoever it may be, essentially taking advantage of the mechanisms that we've built into our democracies to thereby undermine them. And I think that, to me, is the scariest part of it all. It is a national security issue, but more than that, you know, in, in an era when we see, you know, Russia hacking its way into our electoral systems, hacking its way into sort of our hearts and minds and making us as American citizens question the integrity of our democracies. I think I look at corruption as simply another tentacle and another way in which the fundamental basis of who we are can be undermined. And I mean that, you know, when it comes to talking about Delaware and South Dakota and Nevada, some of these U.S. Um, <coughs> essentially shelters that allow for these shell companies to operate. I'm talking about the city of London, where so many of these guys have hidden their money. I'm talking about the real estate markets here in D.C., New York City, San Francisco, uh, Miami, 
even Vancouver in uh, Canada has become a real place where uh, these kleptocrats have been able to hide their money. So when I look at it and I see the kind of ground surge of interest in this topic, I am a little bit more encouraged. I'm glad to see that we're not at the same point we were three years ago where this just wasn't even talked about, where it's now acknowledged that dictators from Azerbaijan or leaders of Kazakhstan or uh, the former leaders of uh, Libya and Egypt have really been um, undermining precisely who we are. I'm glad to see that happening. So I do think we have a long way to go, and I do think Karen's right. But I, I have a little bit more hope that particularly with a younger generation who's going to hopefully stand up and say that they're not going to partake in this kind of thievery, they're not going to be enablers, uh, they're not going to be those British lawyers or American real estate agents or uh, Swiss bankers, I think that's where my hope comes. Uh, let me go a, a bit further still with you, Hannah, though, on this. Um, why isn't it already the case? What I mean by this is, uh, you know, when we discuss issues like sanctions against uh, the Russian regime, uh, like we've done with the Europeans on uh, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, why uh, isn't there more pushback against specific individuals? Why isn't there you know, release of, of information on, on the regime. I mean, does, do the U.S. authorities have this information? Have they collected them? Maybe they don't want to. What I mean is, why, why do we have to wait for the Panama Papers to come up with this kind of information? You know, is, is it a lack of will? Is it a lack of means? Is it they just haven't thought about it yet? No, it's an interesting question, and I think the answer is probably a combination of all of the above. Uh, it's a situation in which you find yourself, let's take the example, say, of Vladimir Putin. Um, it's sort of commonly accepted that he perhaps has a lot of money stashed away. The question then would be, well, why doesn't the U.S. government say so? Why don't they put out proof of uh, where his money's stashed, the different houses he's built, et cetera, et cetera? And the answer from the U.S. government would be something to the effect of the following. Vladimir Putin is the head of the state of Russia. He's the head of the Russian Federation. We have to deal with him. We have to work with him. And unless we want to essentially put him against us, we're not going to do that. And that's been the kind of answer that you would get on these topics traditionally, diplomatically for the past you know, 50 or 60 years. I think that is beginning to change and you're beginning to run into a group of people who think that perhaps that might be one of the mechanisms to get a change of behavior out of these kinds of leaders and these kinds of dictators. I think, you know, you mentioned, do they not even have the information? And I think in some cases that's certainly true. Um, the U.S. government is not all powerful. They are not all knowing. Um, and while they, in certain circumstances, may in fact have um, a certain set of information, the I will say that the U.S. government is and has been when it comes to putting say the Magnitsky sanctions, uh, when it's come to putting someone on an asset freeze list, they have traditionally been extremely cautious to the point of saying that the U.S. Treasury has to have enough legal evidence to present a case in U.S. court and be reasonably certain that they will win. So they're not going to go out there and just put out um, large-scale accusations without a legal amount of evidence. 
So they, they do, in a way, hamstring themselves, and it's for political reasons, it's for legal reasons, it's for a number of other reasons, but I think you're getting now to the point where that dam might be about to break. Right, thank you very much. Uh, we're joined by Tom Firestone, uh, who is a partner at Baker McKenzie and, and who had, uh, you know, who's worked on these issues for a long time at the Department of Justice when he was working on transnational organized crime. So I actually want to follow up on what Hannah just said and, you know, talking about Manitsky. Can you explain to us what has already been done on, on this and, you know, what, what should be done? Uh, uh, what is the, what are the U.S. authorities working on uh, to further their, uh, uh, you know, go, going after uh, kleptocracy like this. Um, I, I'm no longer with the U.S. government, so I'm not privy to all of right. the um, all of their information or what they're working on. Um, in terms of what the U.S. government has done and um, and can do, I think it's uh, I think there's a lot of attention now on this issue in the U.S. government. They recently started the kleptocracy asset Reco recovery initiative within the Department of Justice, which I think was a brilliant idea. Um, just legally, one of the reasons I think that is effective is because it's in a lot of these cases very difficult to convict people criminally, and that's why not that many cases are made. And that's for a number of different legal reasons relating to jurisdiction, relating to evidence. One of the things that the um, uh, DOJ's, not so new, it's about four or five years old now, initiative in kleptocracy asset recovery does is to use um, other legal mechanisms, basically non-conviction based forfeiture, which allows you to seize assets without obtaining an underlying criminal conviction. That's a good idea because you, it's just the evidentiary standards are lower, you don't need to convict somebody, it's easier to do legally, and you just sort of forego the option of prosecuting the individual in order to get the assets, which I think is um, makes a lot of sense and has a good uh, deterrent effect. One thing that I want to stress, though, in terms of what the U.S. Um, government can and should do is it just how hard these cases are. And I think there are limits. I mean, yes, the U.S. government has to be focused on this, and I think they are. Maybe they should be more focused, but it's not a panacea to the problem of international corruption or kleptocracy. Um, you know, I read uh, Ben's paper last night, which I thought was excellent. One of the recommendations he makes is that the U.S. should um, – enforce money laundering laws more aggressively against the enablers. And that's, you know, it's, it's great to the extent that it can be done, but I think it's very hard to do it for the simple reason that when you talk about the enablers, um, what do you, I mean, you're talking about a Western financial institution that has somebody from, say, Russia coming to them with a large amount of money that they want to deposit. And there are red flags around this. It's suspicious. Typically what happens in this situation is the financial institution will ask the person to provide an explanation as to where they got the money. Um, <coughs> it's very easy for them to come up with an explanation that will be satisfactory to the Western financial institution. Um, I, one case I advised a... Um, financial institution on, they, you know, had a suspicious, uh, a suspicious large deposit from an individual from the former Soviet Union employed by a state-owned enterprise. He simply went back to his employer and got a statement from them saying that this money was obtained legally, it was, you know, his bonus, it was his salary, and there's nothing you can do with that because the person's never been convicted, they have a statement from a um, government institution from their employer that all of this money is legal. What is their basis for turning the person away as a client at that point? 
basically nothing. And what this says to me is that the root of the problem is in the home country where these people have so corrupted the institutions that they can obtain court decisions, they can obtain governmental um, government decrees, which will pass muster with the foreign financial institution. And the foreign financial institution is very limited in its investigative abilities. What are they going to do? They can't figure out where this money came from. They can't prove that this was criminally obtained. The U.S. government can't even prove that. How can some financial institution do that? So the question to me is, what can, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good for the U.S. government to shine light on this, but again, I just think there are real limits as to what they can do in terms of cleaning up this problem. I think that the problem is only going to go away when you see domestic prosecutions, and one of the most important things we need to do is to build up domestic capacity to um, create transparency in these countries and to create, allow them to prosecute these cases domestically, because I just don't think that we're ever going to get to the point in, the, uh, in terms of foreign law enforcement where we can really get at the heart of this problem. I'd just add to that by saying that um, a lot of us in this room are aware of the case against Tambov ma Mafia and some Russian ministers in Spain, uh, which is now a decade old. And it has just not gone to court because they can't, it's, what they did was not illegal in Russia and they've had no cooperation from Russia. So how to actually launch this prosecution successfully is, it's almost impossible. And of course, people have been allowed to return to Russia. And even if it is illegal in the home country, I mean, I've seen a lot of these cases where it is illegal in the home country, you can so, because the countries are so corrupt, for the reasons we're talking about, it's very easy for them to get a court decision saying that what they did was perfectly legal, that they were acquitted, that you know uh, the case was brought in properly, whatever, and then they can come and bring that. And that is has to be entitled to some deference. Maybe it shouldn't, but you know there's no way that you can create a presumption that any official government statement from a foreign government is you know presumptively falsely obtained, and that you have to prove that it's legally obtained. Those are always going to have to be entitled to some deference because that's just the way the world works. And so as long as they can corrupt the domestic, political, um, and uh, judicial system, we're always going to be at a very hard, uh, in a very hard position trying to do anything about this. I think it is a, a, a great role for Fourth Estate. I mean, that DOJ website mm -hmm. is golden. <laughs> <laughs> because you can go on there, you can, you can type in the country of origin that you're looking for, you can, if you know the case, you can look at that, you can see the case of you know, U.S. versus Michael Jackson's crystal tour glove because it was seized, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, that, I mean, that, I, that is, I think, an infinitely sexier story for journalists than the Panama Papers, which is a story that really didn't take off because it was too difficult, too difficult. Ben, you wanted to respond to yeah. a few of the comments? Yeah, no, I just... Oh. Why? That's the way the world works. I don't know. I, just, I, I, I think that's an extremely like, defeatist and simplistic comment. Right? That's, that's not the way the world works, because the world, is, the world is shaped by power. And if you take power in institutions, and if you take power in the White House and in Congress, you can radically overhaul legislative, uh, legislative frameworks. Right? Could, you could eat, it is within the power of the political systems of the European Union and the United Kingdom and the United States to pass laws going that we don't respect those, uh, th those orders from foreign governments. Is that politically feasible, like, right this minute? I don't know. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the story of London and the warning that the United Kingdom poses to 
the United States. Because in many ways, I think this conversation is five years too late. It's 10 years too late. It's already over the river sticks in a lot of ways. Now, if we look at London, London's not just a city. London's also a financial system. It's a financial system that if you take these sort of slightly legally obscured tax havens, such as the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands, it's the largest financial system and the largest uh, tax haven in the world and the most secretive. Now, London is the capital of global money laundering and the preferred sort of root of money laundering in the capital is through, is through, is through property. We've set up a legal system because that's the way the world works, where, we can buy, where an anonymous uh, shell company offshore can purchase uh, a, a London property. So you can purchase uh, London property through a sort of secrecy code without having to do any sort of justification, without having to explain where your money is or what your money is. Now, that has completely transformed the city of, uh, the city of London. We now have over 37,000 properties in the city of London. We don't know who owns them. It's mysterious. We don't know who owns that building, that building, that building. And this scale of it is now twice the size of the financial district, twice the size of the city of London. That's two and a quarter square miles. Now, what's that done? That, let's just, you know, I'm sure many of you have sort of spent time in London. That's one in ten of all of the properties in the city of Westminster. That's over 7% of the properties in, in Kensington and uh, Chelsea. Uh, Kensington and, uh, Chelsea. and that has seen uh, an enormous boom in London property prices that is actually beginning to make London citizens much poorer because it's, swallow it's beginning to slow the London economy because it's swallowing people's wages into sort of rent and property prices. It's creating dangerous uh, over-leveragings of families. It's pushing out the sort of Londoners from, Londoners from, uh, Londoners from, from London. What I see in Washington, what I see in London, what I see you know, all over the Western world is a refusal to accept the consequences of wealth. It's a refusal to accept that there are any consequences of this money coming through. So as you may have heard in the United Kingdom over the last uh, year and a half, we've had some quite interesting politics. And the politics of what's happened to the Conservative Party and the politics of what has happened to the Labour Party are in many ways quite similar is the Labour Party was overwhelmed by a long-suppressed, hard-left tradition, exemplified by the sort of elderly sort of uh, the elderly gentleman, Mr Corbyn, with a lot of very angry, very clever, bright, young, hard-leftists who have now taken control over a party, the second most important party in the United Kingdom, a party which has a chance of taking government, you know, maybe not immediately, maybe not with Corbyn in the... Front seat, but certainly down the line, this is uh, very much uh, on the cards. Now, in the Conservative Party, you had a sort of Brexit movement seeking to take back control, seeking to make sort of England, England uh, again, that rode an anti-elite tiger, rode an anti-elite, angry tiger, similar to the one that uh, gentlemen like Paul Ryan are sort of, sort of doing sort of complicated dances around in, uh, the, in US uh, politics right now. And that saw... Britain leave the European, begin to begin to leave the European Union in uh, a referendum. So in both cases, you know, Brexit and the election of Corbyn, you have this anger at elites, the sense of systems rigged, the sense that there are being cuts are being uh, made against them, the sense that people can't afford houses, the sense that people are sort of profiteering, uh, profiteering uh, off them. And 
In both cases, this is a sort of downriver consequence of refusing to accept the consequences of wealth made either illegally through money laundering or through profiteering through money laundering, or the consequences of enjoying wealth based off the refusal and indifference to pay taxes. If you look at these studies as to who voted for Brexit or who voted for Corbyn, issues of austerity, issues of huge cutbacks made in health, huge cutbacks made in social, uh, social housing are absolutely decisive. And I, you know, what you have in Britain is you have a political system which is, I'm not saying it's destabilized, is an understatement. And what I see here is maybe not in this election, but that forces are very much moving, uh, moving in, in, that, uh, in that way. And I think that will have, uh, very disruptive consequences for American foreign policy and for the idea of an American, uh, the idea of uh, of an uh, uh, of an American system. There's also something else which the case of London uh, exemplifies, which I very much see here, which is again like the refusal to accept uh, consequences of where of who you do business with. Is if you go, if you went back to sort of, uh, we really need to go that very far back, actually, if you went sort of six, seven years uh, back in time and you went to uh, went to talk to the Russian embassy in London and you talked to the um, British embassy in Moscow, there was a sense that London and Moscow were sort of globalising together and that London was changing Moscow, that Russia would inevitably, because of these deep grooves in globalisation, would become more like uh, London. And in fact, quite the inverse has happened. There's this sort of very sort of irritating and I think actually very unintellectual, like Panglossian sort of overconfidence uh, about uh, globalization, which the president here uh, exemplifies in many, in many ways, that simply by sort of coming and doing business to the West and sort of maybe going to a, a Western university, that these elites would be socialized into the Western pattern and would sort of live in that manner and then sort of Western values would sort of change them progressively. And that hasn't happened. In fact, we've started to see quite the opposite happen, which is that as vast amounts of <coughs> Russian money has come in to the United Kingdom, we've seen increasing chunks of the British elite, this whole class of enablers, come to serve their, uh, their corruption. And I think the, the point here is like, just be careful who you, who you globalize with. And just my little stat that might, might be sort of illuminating is the European police offices has estimated that 20% of people in the Russian parliament, 40% of decision makers in private enterprise, 50% of bank directors, and 60% of directors and managers of state-owned companies have criminal ties. Now, if that's your client base, you need to ask yourself how they're changing, how they're changing you. Now, in the British political system, you, in, the, in the British political system, the sort of uh, the elite is uh, dependent on increasingly on the rent from this class of individuals. It's dependent either in a sort of petty way. It's dependent either on a little bit of rent as an art dealer, a little bit of rent as a lawyer, a little teeny, teeny, teeny bit of rent as a, uh, as a sort of PR man, a little bit more as a private uh, wealth manager. And the British state is increasingly dependent on the rent that it extracts from financial, from sort of financial services. Well, when it's you know, I think it's around 13% of the British budget uh, is wealth extracted from financial uh, financial services. Now, when you when you become as an elite or as a as a budget very dependent on these uh, these sources of money, like it has 
a consequence. And the consequence is that you don't own it, it owns you. You find yourself unable to legislate against it. You find yourself addicted to that, hooked onto that, uh, onto that cash. And what I see sort of looking at, uh, sort of forward after Brexit is that the UK is sort of unmoored from the EU regulatory uh, framework. The UK increasingly desperate to prove that it can uh, sort of flourish or um, prosper or just get by in a uh, post-EU, post-single market, perhaps uh, economic context, is going to have to lower its standards. It's like when we... It, there's, there is a sort of moral element to it, and one of the things that's so sort of interesting about... Uh, you know, just a, being a student of the history of American political rhetoric is the vanishing of that word and how it became sort of restricted to how it sort of retreated and retreated and retreated both in content and in uh, its use from big international topics to personal uh, personal topics. And this this topic is not a new topic. Not the first time uh, we've done an event. Not the first time that any of us have talked about this or been working on this. This has been well known for 15 years. And I think, again, it's a refusal to accept consequences of, uh, of where this money has come from. Like, now, in the, the UK, you know, we can't pretend that nothing is happening. In the US, we can't pretend nothing is happening. We have the data. We have the results of research. We have the warning signs from authorities uh, and experts, but we're not taking we're not taking action. As increasingly, sort of criminal funds buy up uh, power and influence within London. And also, it's too boring to go into too many details of it. But we're very much seeing through foundations and through advisors and interesting funds, you know, how dubious money has been buying up influence in this American uh, political uh, political system. And there's a sort of thing that's most annoying about it is that because there aren't people dead on the street outside the Trump Hotel because of corruption, so there aren't people dead on the, the street of the city of London, we refuse to pretend that there is any link to it. Now, corruption, corruption is not just kind of us, big numbers, figures, wouldn't it be better, tax, you know, oh, complicated geopolitical uh, consequences. Corruption is... It kills people. There are some studies that suggest that 3.6 million people die a year from corruption in the developing world because this money is ripped out of budgets. This money is HIV-AIDS budgets that were stolen. The money is roads that are not built. It's roads that are not re-tarmacked. It's states that it's uh, states that were not providing to their the, to their uh, citizenry. And I find it very sad that. This is, we just pretend that we don't know this. Well, really, we do. Um, yeah, this is Tom. <coughs> I just want to be clear. I'm not disagreeing with uh, the threat that any of this poses, nor with the recommendation that we need more transparency <coughs> in foreign financial transactions. I think that's a very good idea. I'm just saying that once you, you know, it's, uh, the more identification of all the beneficial owners uh, that we can require, the better. 
Um, but that's just not the end of the story. The problem is, as I've seen in a million cases, we've identified the ultimate beneficial owner, but then you get to the problem if the person has some sort of legitimate explanation or an explanation that's impossible to disprove, <laughs> and it is impossible to prove that the money came from a criminal uh, from a criminal source. And then you get into this legal problem of how do you possibly apply money laundering laws either to that individual or to any of the enablers. And without that kind of proof, it's extremely difficult, and the reason you can't get that kind of proof is because you're dependent on the foreign government to provide it, and the foreign government is the same one that they are, are involved with and have stolen from that made all of this possible. So until, I mean, the West should do what it can, but again, I just reiterate that the core of the problem is in the countries that are kleptocracies, and until those are made more transparent, we're going to have this inflow of uh, dirty money, and I think it's going to be very difficult to do anything about it except with a few of the most egregious cases. Well, I, don't, I actually don't think that's inevitable. Like, if, you know, take sort of Equatorial Guinea, mm -hmm. take the PEPs of Equatorial Guinea, it's been, it's been, if it is, we have such extensive evidence that this place is a kleptocracy that is a predator on its own people. And it is completely feasible to pass laws in the, within the West that we don't take their money. Your whole argument is predicated on the fact that we have to take the money because the money is available, and as long as there's some, oh, and because you can't get the specific piece of paper because the place is a kleptocracy, there's nothing you can do about it. No, you can change the legislative framework that goes, we don't take money from countries and from political elites in these countries where we know they're predators on their own people. It might not seem politically feasible now, but what we're seeing is this immense instability in Anglo-American political systems because of this surging unease and anger from below how the financial system is perceived uh, is perceived to be to be rigged and Would i you, don't think that such kind of actions are completely inconceivable uh, further down the line would you recommend something we don't take any money from russia i i would be interested in looking at why you know should we take money from peps linked to the putin the putin regime to the putin regime <laughs> I'd be interested in investigating that, yes. Okay, but, but, not, but you would take money from Russia. You would just limit the money you won't take from Russia to certain individuals. It's, a, it's, something, to, it's something to really look into. You know, I, the, the premise that you know, we need an unlimited amount and as much money as we can possibly get from Russia, we know that this money, especially in London and in the U.S., is having enormously egregious effects both on that country and on our on our own is not one is one that we need to look at again. I'm not sure that we. Uh, I'm not sure that si I'm not sure that the cash flow comes first. But if don't I we? I'm sorry. Then I'll I'll shut up because. Uh, but don't don't we already have that though? We've got the sanctions on Russia. We've got a large list of SDNs from Russia who are exactly the kind of people that you're talking about. Peps who are linked to Putin and basically as a result of the sanctions, you can't touch them. So are you advocating <laughs> just maybe expanding that list a little bit, or would you <laughs> want a blanket? ban on any Russian money. And if it's not the latter, then we're right back into the evidentiary problem of how you prove that this person is but what we're talking, warranted. What, what I'd like to see mm. is that we begin to think through how we can practice a broader policy of containment against, uh, against dirty money. You know, if, you know if, this is a, if we believe that this is a difficult, a painful struggle for over the next uh, coming decades, you know, we should start first by what we know we can achieve very quickly, which is ending, uh, ending uh, offshore secrecy companies and trying to end anonymous uh, companies, radically heightening 
these amounts of laws, which could reduce this flow. And then if we, we should look at, you know, whether, you know, there are uh, regimes such as the, the Putin regime where, you know, we could pass, like, laws designating them as kleptocracies until certain reforms uh, were met. And that would change the legal basis in which we were doing business with, uh, with these countries and with these, uh, with these elites. I, I mean, I certainly agree with that. I think there should be more broader strategic thinking about this, looking at uh, things that we can do to sort of change the burden of proof in some of these cases. I think much more productive than um, trying to use money laundering laws to go after these cases would be an amendment to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which right now criminalizes only the giving of bribes, but not the receiving of bribes. The U.S. government has been extremely effective in prosecuting these cases, prosecuting the bribe givers. And um, in my opinion, the bribe givers Sometimes they're the problem, they're part of the problem, but they're not the core of the problem. The core of the problem, in my experience working on international corruption cases, is the guys who demand the bribes on the other side. And I don't think that's a controversial proposition. If you have a transaction and somebody's giving money and somebody's receiving money, I think most of us would rather be the ones receiving money rather than giving money, which tells you something about where the problem is coming from. Unfortunately, the FCPA does not allow for the prosecution of bribe receipt, only bribe giving. This is in contrast to the UK Bribery Act, which does cover cover both, both sides of the equation, and in contrast to some of the um, some international standards. Um, uh, so I would think that that would be one thing that the U.S. government should explore, because we have a huge number of these FCPA cases based on companies paying bribes. Almost always in these cases, the companies have come in and they've self-disclosed to the U.S. government, and they enter into an agreement with the U.S. government, which requires them to cooperate and provide information. I think it would be a relatively an easier jump to go from those cases to prosecuting the bribe recipients than to try to prosecute them and the enablers for um, money laundering. Can I just add to that um, by uh, coming back to a, maybe a couple of paragraphs in, in Ben's paper where he talks about the Parliamentary Assembly, Assembly for the Council of Europe. One of the most glorious achievements of the European idea, right? Yes. And I used to do a lot of work on PACE reports about elections in the post-Soviet space. And I was very taken with his convincing analysis that, that it's become an empty shell. When you allow um, Azerbaijan, which doesn't even have a clout internationally of Russia, into PACE, and they even are able to get into the leadership of PACE and to so affect the uh, robustness of PACE reports that Aliyev was able himself to state that international treaties are not worth the paper that they're written on and might is right. That's the only thing that matters. We really, we really stand in, in in threat of the new European countries who are depending upon the robustness of these institutions losing faith. And I, I, um, I think that making the receipt of bribes, including the list that was in your paper, the receiving of silk uh, uh, carpets, the receiving of uh, free luxury holidays, and Ill illegal for any European official. 
And I mean, one could say optimistically that Britain won't have this problem because they won't have any officials in Europe anymore. Well, we, we will actually be in the Council of Europe, unfortunately. It's <laughs> part of the alphabet, the alphabet. So we're just going to get more but, but, details but, on this story. Yeah, but just, just to finish this point, I think it is underestimated the extent to which regimes like Azerbaijan and certainly regimes like Russia have compromised on our officials. So if we shoot the gun once, which we could do only once, and release what we know about Putin's money, well, what's, uh, what's going to happen next? Lobby firms in, in uh, D.C. will be disclosed for what they're doing with Russia. I mean, and I think that the awareness of this possibility <laughs> is driving a lot of, you know, stepping back from the water's edge on these kinds of tough actions. Would you like you more like details from this ca egregious case in the Council of Europe? Is that Azerbaijan, which a dictatorship, joins the Council of Europe, which the premise is, is that only democracies can join. It was set up under the inspiration of, Win of Winston Churchill to be the guardian of the European uh, Court of Human Rights and to have a sort of political assembly that would meet annually to do sort of human rights reports and guard this ideal internationally. And during the Cold War, the admittance of sort of Portugal and Spain, this was a sort of an institution which really could have sort of pressure and to help countries uh, democratize. Now, Azerbaijan effectively bought the silence of this, this council to the extent the Council of Europe now issues reports saying that Azerbaijan is a sort of wonderful place and sort of magnificent, uh, magnificent, demo it's a magnificent uh, democracy. And this is what that, what that shows is that unless you have, you know, a, you know, a very, unless you push to create a containment system by doing, like, everything that we've mentioned, like, really ramping it up, like, really strengthening our defences against kleptocracy, you know, you are in danger. You are in danger of these institutions uh, suffering, uh, suffering, suffering a sort of kleptocratic uh, takeover. And what the, you know, the issue of the Council of Europe for me is so symbolic is that, this is an institution set up as the guardian of human rights that can be brought for like a few silk carpets and uh, boxes of caviar to the extent that kind of Aliyev is sort of glorifying, saying that uh, you know international treaties are not worth are not worth anything. We see it, and everybody else can see it too. We see this throughout the world that only might is right, and that's a very depressing depressing tale for. The European Union, and also for uh, also for the United States. Thank you. I think before maybe turning to questions from the audience, uh, a, a couple of points that uh, I, uh, you know, I think were very important. What you said earlier, uh, Ben, more political points that how this system is, is indeed fueling resentment at elites at the establishment. It is one of the the root causes of the rise of populism we see in in Europe and the United States and. It, you know, it is very important to tackle it because it's it's a double loser for us because the the paradox of all of all of it is these populist leaders like Jeremy Corbyn or you know Marine Le Pen in in, in France uh, end up with a pro-Russian message actually turn to these liberal regimes so they yeah. they win on both sides because they do manage to corrupt the the, the trust uh, at at democracy at our institutions within our public opinions and then they sort of manage to turn it to paradoxically into soft power for their own regime. So I, I, you know, I, I think it's very important to uh, to be aware of this. And a, and a second point, you know, I like that you 
you quoted both in the end of report and your speech the, the national security strategy of 2015, which is indeed an interesting text. Um, one of the key concepts of this document, which is supposed to be you know, laying out the vision of the president and the foreign policy approach of the administration, is strategic patience. And strategic patience is the idea basically that you know, the main risk for American powers to be overstretched, to overreact to events, because deeper forces actually uh, play in favor of American power. You know, and, and, and clearly you can read behind the line this sort of idea of the sense of history that globalization by diffusing norms and values and, and some you know, forms of behaviors and technology, uh, social media, et cetera, plays in the favor of Western power, Western values. And so we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be too reactive. We shouldn't listen to uh, you know, the, the, the pundits, the, the, the chattering classes who, want to, who do want to conf confront these threats because deep down time is playing in our favor. Uh, and, and you do have this very much in the rhetoric of the administration when it talks about uh, Russia acting like a 19th century power, you know, ISIS being from the Middle Age. But it turns out they're actually very effective at using social media for propaganda. They're very effective at understanding the flaws of our financial system, of our democracy. And I think, and you know, the Azerbaijan case shows that in many respects, they understand our institutions much better than we understand theirs. They understand the flaws of our elites much better than we understand this. We're transparent. We publish, you know, everything that uh, that we that we think that we debate. Um, so, you know, the the idea that somehow there's a sense of history and globalization that it plays in, in in our favor. It it's exactly the opposite. There's a, there's a hijacking of globalization uh, by by these regimes and that is playing against us. So I think it's it is very important to uh, to stress that. Now. We we have a lot of time actually for uh, questions from uh, from the audience. So let's uh, let's start. Yes. <coughs> Thanks for a very interesting discussion and for a very compelling paper that I've read. Thank you on this topic. So um, and thank you for featuring Azerbaijan. I'm I'm a journalist. I cover Azerbaijan. So my name is Alex. Um, I wonder if uh, you know the problem that we're talking about is laying um, in a gray line that we are. We are not, you know, calling that elephant in the room by its own name. Um, uh, the, you know, when uh, authoritarian regimes that have proven their, you know, uh, authoritarian nature over and over, in case of Azerbaijan right now, we're talking about that, um, that are able to find their ways to this country and engage in every textbook money laundering uh, tactics. Um, is there any uh, well, concern uh, between? Uh, let's say lobbying on behalf of those governments and helping them to engage in money laundering. Uh, let me paraphrase this question. Um, you know, caviar diplomacy campaign worked in Europe because it was a big no, no, no for European society. And journalists start writing about that. So I've been doing it here in this town because it's happening here as well. Um, but uh, again, lobbying is not illegal in the US, but lobbying you know, on behalf of the governments that as I mentioned, like uh, launch a smear campaign against the U.S. values, and uh, is, shouldn't that be a gray line for us? And uh, I think uh, maybe that's where the problems are starting. Well, we should from. think about like Another, would, is it should it be, you know, do we think it's it's correct that uh, you can that uh, our enemies can uh, and uh, kleptocratic states can access our political institutions and lobby in them in the same way as our as our allies. I, no. think that's a, I, mean that's a worth, I think that's worth our discussion of whether or not 
it's when you have a state which has been proved to be a kleptocracy, like Azerbaijan and like uh, and like the sort of Putin uh, regime, where we can't get any sort of like documents from the regime itself saying it's a kleptocracy because they control everything so utterly about it, but we have the information. Uh, otherwise, uh, to prove it, I think it's an open question. I think it's something to debate whether or not they should be able, should they should be legally permitted to uh, operate in the same way that Norway might practice sort of lobbying in DC or that Britain might want to lobby in DC. Uh, yes, uh, I, don't, yeah. I don't know the, the details of that. I haven't thought that through, but that's the kind of question that I'd, uh, I'd, like, to I'd like to ask. You know, we have uh, State Department reports, uh, reports that come up from Freedom House and other organizations that have listed a number of countries that you know, engage in human rights violations. And that, uh, that could be a tool to use you know, when we have the FAR, FAR uh, let's say, uh, agreements that we sign with those countries. So it should be some, there should be some line there that we cannot you know, lobby on behalf of human rights violators. Another question is like, Azerbaijan has been launching a campaign against the US organizations. You know, there's, uh, there's an ongoing uh, crackdown right now and the government is engaging anti-US campaign. And then you have organizations like Baker and McKenzie is entering Azerbaijan and helping the Azerbaijan government to launch some, you know, strategy. So that's it. That that causes. No, Baker McKenzie has not launched any. As far as I know, the Baker McKenzie has not been involved in any effort to, on behalf of the government of Azerbaijan and the United States, lobbying or otherwise. So I just want to be clear about that. We do have an office in Azerbaijan that helps mostly foreign companies that are looking to invest there. A lot of what they do is compliance and making sure that everything is done legally. I'm not aware of any work that we've done to launch a campaign for the government of Azerbaijan in the United States. Um, oh, just on the on the broader point, though, um, in terms of lobbying, I mean, I think there are a few issues here: lobbying, money laundering, and um, smear campaigns. Lobbying is on behalf of foreign governments is obviously subject to different requirements. You have the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which I think is an important piece of legislation, <laughs> requires full disclosure um, of um, lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. I think it's difficult to distinguish between foreign governments because today one government is, you know, our, our ally and tomorrow it becomes a kleptocracy. Sometimes a lot of times it's somewhere in the gray area, which is why I think it's important to apply uniform standards for all lobbying on behalf of foreign governments. And that should all be transparent. And it is under fire. One thing I think that should be done is if people are are acting on behalf of foreign governments and they're not registered under FARA, or if they're submitting false FARA um, declarations, that should be investigated quite aggressively. And there's a recent OIG, OIG report recommending exactly that. So I think that's something that the US government um, can do and is moving in the direction of doing. Money laundering is just, it's a different issue. As we've talked about, it requires um, a um, affirmative knowing um, attempt to help, uh, help those who are in possession of criminal proceeds hide, conceal the source of those proceeds, and I think that should be uh, prosecuted extremely aggressively, and it is. In terms of smear campaigns against the U.S. government, obviously here we're getting into sensitive issues of free speech, and we have, our government has always taken the position that political speech is highly protected by the First Amendment, and I think that that's right because one person's smear campaign is somebody else's public uh, awareness raising campaign. So I think that that's just, you know, the price we pay for living in a free, open society. <coughs> yeah, I, I think I'd like to add to that, and Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's ever been uh, more than one or two prosecutions under FARA. There are very few. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, you're 50, exactly 60 right. Long here yeah, in you're you're exactly right. Yes, there are it, very few cases under FARA. 
Yeah, and, and even when cases have been brought, there really just haven't been any, any prosecutions. And in, most people tend to think that there are not that many FARA violations out there. But I think, again, in the past several years, you've seen a kind of raising of awareness of the extent to which people are, in fact, doing lobbying without having registered under FARA. Um, I think some people also don't know that there's a kind of FARA loophole in a way where you can register with the Senate, I believe it is. Uh, and, and sort of register on a sideline there so you don't necessarily have to register under FARA. So you are registered in some way, shape, or form, um, but the, the, the kind of difficulty here is that it's, it is public information, but not people really just don't take the time to go out and look for it. People don't take the time to go and look and see who's representing the Azeri government or who is uh, lobbying on behalf of Gazprom. It's just not something that people really, as citizens, we should know that we have these kinds of tools at our disposal, but we really just don't. And when we come across these cases and we're concerned about lobbying, we, I think there's a kind of lack of civic education really on this. And we don't know that there's a, a fair, we don't know that there's the ability for, for prosecutions. And so it just doesn't happen. I think, that, I think that's exactly right. I think there's gonna be more attention to this as a result of the recent OIG report and as a result of the Manafort scandal and just the general discussion of these issues. And our firm actually put out a client alert recently on exactly this, telling you know the world that you've gotta pay attention to these requirements and if you're not registered, you've gotta register. So I think that we're gonna see a lot more under this, um, under this uh, in this area. What I think you're talking about is the possibility of registering under the Lobbying Disclosure Act instead of FARA, which is, it's a loophole, but I think sometimes people take it a little bit um, a little bit too far when you can use that as opposed to fire but that's something else that needs to be looked into and uh, we're actually planning on hosting a uh, conference just on fire to get the word out about what uh, what companies that are in involved in this kind of activity need to do to get themselves registered and in compliance with the law. So I think it's an important issue and one, one uh, that could be another element of this strategy of trying to combat exactly what Ben is talking about. I wonder whether um, it would be possible to extend FARA so that you didn't just have to register if you were representing a foreign country, but if you were, re if you were representing a state-owned corporation, mm. or if you were a identified as a person, a, I mean, I, the word I'm looking for is an oligarch, but you would have to have an operational definition for that. If you were representing uh, Gulnara Kalimova in D.C., or a member of the Aliyev family who is not holding a, a per, uh, an actual state uh, ro role, how, how would you do that? I think there are, there are a lot of people in D.C. who would argue, well, we want to have back channels, there's something to be gained from having people we can talk to. Um, and, and, you know, as a matter of principle, I'm actually kind of a child of the depth of the Cold War, and so I, I, I believe in this, idea of keeping some lines open, but then where, where does that line stop? Where, how, how far should it be extended outward? Well, FARA does go way beyond the foreign government. I mean, it covers state-owned enterprises, and in a lot of cases, it covers foreign principles as well. So it does go there. I think it's just what Hannah was saying. People don't really look at this, and I think that there, my guess is, I don't know, but there are probably people who should be registered under FARA who are not, and I think if there were more aggressive um, investigations, you'd see a lot more registrations and a lot more information um, coming out about this. And I swear, I mean, a lot of the lobbying is legitimate. There is a 
value to lobbying. I mean, lobbyists would say that this is protected by the First Amendment. This is an essential part of the democratic process. What we just have to make clear is that it's, you know, what's important is that it be disclosed and that it be done ethically. Just want to thank the panelists. Um, Mr. Duda, the uh, paper's great, and uh, Mr. Davidson, um, thank you for convening this on behalf of the Kleptocracy Initiative. Uh, my name is Mark Hayes. I work with an organization called Global Witness um, that's been focused on these issues for a number of years. And my question for the panelists um, uh, is essentially uh, for the room as well, um, and it's focused on how we bring um, this issue and the key points being made in the room to the decision makers that can have some impact on that. And I'll give a little context for that, which I think provides some optimism as well as some realism in the face of some of the points raised here. We started campaigning on this issue as a result of our work in over 20 different countries looking at corrupt deals in the natural resources sector um, in places from Angola to Burma and, and everywhere in between. And consistently we found a pattern that's been described in the paper use of shell companies and enablers um, to move money offshore and to stash it overseas in a way to enable people to uh, live the life to which they're accustomed off the backs of those in those countries. And we started campaigning on issues related to illicit finance and beneficial ownership in 2008 um, and 2009, both here in the US and in the UK and Europe. And for that four year period, pretty much um, most of those conversations were with people who have found various polite ways of telling us we had no a snowball's chance in hell of making this happen. Um, but then 2013 came, and, uh, or 2012, and then there was the HSBC scandal, um, which led to the UK government making a commitment under the G8 to pass um, uh, laws requiring beneficial ownership, disclosure, and public registries of that information in the UK. Flash forward to now, the UK has now implemented that and we're beginning to see the first bits of data there. The EU passed a fourth anti-money laundering directive which is requiring those states to collect that information. Um, in the wake of the Panama Papers, not only did you see some heads of states resigning, you saw the EU countries committing to reopening that process to make those registries, which had stopped short of public, to consider making those registries public as well. Um, here in the US, we had bills reintroduced that have been considered for multiple years, by, um, introduced by Senators Levin and Grassley in the Senate um, that never moved past a hearing. Um, before the Panama Papers, those bills had a smattering of sponsors. Now in the House, um, the House version of the bill has 15 sponsors and is growing. There's more interest in the Senate as well. And we've seen conversations on the Hill change from we have to spend most of our time explaining what this issue is, bar none, to automatic recognition of what the problem is we're focused on. Um, and then even this August, you had the Clearinghouse Association, um, the major uh, banking association, come on board supporting this piece of legislation as well. So we've seen a sea change in the, in the situation where things that have been once thought impossible are now possible. And so my question to you all as well for those folks in the room is, um, we see a real opportunity to move this work forward and get decision makers to get on board with this reform, but it's not inevitable. Um, they are hearing from oppositional voices on this issue, the wealth defense industry, um, the secretaries of state, members of the bar, um, as to why this is an unworkable situation. They're not hearing from the people who understand the depth to which this problem goes beyond simply a matter of numbers um, and, and shell games. They're not hearing from people who understand how this is robbing people of their, their futures. Um, so my question is, how can we get more of those people and those people understand it, um, engage with the decision makers who actually have to understand why this is such a critical issue? Thank you. Uh, uh, let me 
think we're talking about uh, uh, are we taking a lot of questions at once or are we like I think we can answer uh, we can start by answering this one and then I've got maybe an unhelpful answer to your question, which is that like something I notice has really has been a problem of the last 20 years is <coughs> a sort of Generation X and quite millennial like indifference to politics and disdain for politicians and disdain for the for the political path and this assumption that you know it's somehow wonderful to work as a journalist or work in the NGO industry. But to actually get your hands dirty in a political party is is sort of vulgar and uh, not interesting. And one thing I've learned, like being British in the past uh, year, is actually how much I depend on my politicians and how how important it is that the right people are are intensely involved in the in the in the political parties. And I, I don't know what work you personally do or what what your colleagues personally do, but I think it. In general, I think we need a, an attitudinal uh, shift in which more people are encouraged, supported, and try to get involved in, in politics and in, and in political parties. And I think that's part, that's part of it. And I, you know, I think part of the answer to your question is simply the fact that we've created this kleptocracy initiative, and that's one of our goals behind what we're trying to do is essentially, I think, one, bring this into the public eye, two, create some resources for journalists and people like yourself who are interested in bringing this further into the fore of the public eye, but also three, really go out and talk to people on the Hill, go out and talk to folks in the State Department, Justice Department, Treasury, FBI, who are looking for encouragement from the public and they're just not getting it. And I think that's one of the things that we're trying to do here is really push this topic forward and we have these meetings, really, to, to sit here and attempt to develop our ideas and have a kind of conversation where we can take these ideas on board and begin to build um, a, a set of values and a set of ideas that we can then take and push further on. I, I, two thoughts. One, I agree with you. Things have really changed a lot. I mean, I see that in our work. When we take on a new client, I mean, the degree of due diligence we has, have to do on them, I dare say, is a lot more than it was 10, 15 years ago. And we also see it with our clients. I spend a lot of my time just working with clients because they're worried about business partners in a lot of these countries. Can we work with this person? Even if maybe it's not a violation of the law to work with them, there's a reputational harm to working with them. How do we manage that? Should we walk away from the deal? And that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. So I think that a lot has happened. In terms of um, moving it forward, I think one thing that is, I guess a couple things. One thing that I think is important is kind of tying the whole picture together because there's sort of discussions about kleptocracy and um, the negative effects on the London, things that kind of things that Benner is um, writing about. And then there's also the strategic, sort of the national security issues um, here. And I think Ben has tried to tie that a lot of that together in his paper when he talks about containment. But I think putting it all together in a way that, you know, showing that kleptocracy is a national security threat because kleptocratic regimes tend to start wars to divert the, pop, the attention of their own populations, the fact that they've stolen all the money, that they also engage in the kinds of disinformation campaigns that um, Hudson and uh, Marius have written about. And putting it all together, I think, is important because I think that now I, too many of the, the issues are just sort of understood in isolation too much. So I think that's one thing. And then the other thing is I think bringing this to the attention of uh, corporations is very important in the institutions. And, you know, as I say, one of the 
a lot of our work is working with these clients to make sure that they don't take on local partners who are going to have reputational risks for them. And that's just a point of entry into all of this. If you can make companies understand that it's not worth it to do business with certain kinds of people, they're going to walk away from them. It makes it harder for these people to grow their businesses. And I think that's a, um, you know, just getting corporations more focused on reputational issues is, uh, is another way to move it forward. Yeah, I, I would add to that. Um, I'm very aware of the work that Global Witness has done, and it's really a, a huge assistance in this uh, shedding a light on kleptocracy, especially in the energy field. You can't understand it without looking at the work that you've done. It, you know, Gazprom and Ro Rosneft weren't, didn't invent this stuff out of whole cloth. They learned it from Western energy companies' activities in Africa. Uh, Sechin himself has, has admitted that he learned about this from being in Mozambique. So it, it's really important for the, the NGO world, which is very powerful in, uh, in, the, in the U.S., and not only in the U.S., but also journalists. And I think, too, that one of the, the, the things that's very underappreciated is not that the Panama Papers were uh, released, but that major news organizations took it upon themselves and in nonprofits to understand what was going on. Because that's a story that is too difficult for to just say, here's the, here's the website, good luck. It's almost impossible to access the important information that's there, which was revealed about not only the Russian regime, but also, let's say, uh, the conservative party. Uh, and journalists did that. And you talk about reputational effects. Look. look don't don't look at, at you know leftist newspapers. Look at the Wall Street Journal and its treatment of Siemens and its treatment of Deutsche Bank. I mean th that that was a very has been I think a very tough thing for uh, reputational protection not only of those companies individually but for the idea that Germany is this you know very robust uh, law governed corporate uh, uh, country and. That will have an effect to the extent to which corporate malfeasance is is focused on by the press. Yeah. Um, and you know, I know I would add uh, uh, doubling down on what Tom said. I, I really think when you talk to policymakers, and this is what KI is trying to do, uh, you have to make a national security case. I mean, at home, it's becoming a sovereignty issue. It's really limiting our, our leverage to conduct foreign policy. When you have foreign influences, we manage to uh, uh, infiltrate decision-making process. And, and abroad, it's also you know it's also part of the, the foreign policy toolbox, uh, the, the leverage you want to have when you have tensions with these regimes. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, when when it comes to tensions with Russia uh, during the Ukrainian crisis, the sanctions, especially individualized sanctions, are very important. Notably, when you understand the central role that kleptocracy plays for for these regimes. So I, I think really it's. It's very important that that's, that's the work that's been done here is to understand it's, it's not only about rule of law, human rights, or you know, altruistic issues. It's also about our own national interest. We're going to take maybe a couple of questions. There was one here. Yeah. Dave Peterson, I'm uh, with the Africa program at the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, kleptocracy is an issue that we're paying a lot more attention these days. Uh, very happy to participate in a conference with Charles uh, in uh, Berlin a while back in Transparency International. But um, my question is, uh, in the case of Africa, 
Uh, I'm wondering if uh, there is a, a approach that is sort of looking at the low-hanging fruit, in a sense. Uh, one of the participants at this conference in Berlin was uh, William Bourdin, uh, who has been pursuing this uh, Bien Malachi uh, case in uh, France, uh, you know, going against some uh, African dictators, uh, Congo Brazzaville, Equatorial Guinea, uh, Gabon, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, after 10 years of work, uh, he succeeded in getting some traction. Uh, these dictators are now uh, in danger of um, uh, being put in prison uh, if they, uh, you know, find themselves in France. And he wants to do something similar in the U.S. Um, you know, a couple months ago, um, the um, son of uh, uh, Denis Sassou Nguesso, uh, uh, Congo Brazzaville, was here in Washington. Uh, he's got a foundation, you know, that uh, is giving lots of money uh, to uh, American uh, uh, NGOs and uh, what have you, uh, uh, trying to buy influence. But um, he would seem to be very vulnerable uh, to this uh, kind of prosecution. So uh, I'm just wondering if uh, you might reflect. Of course, uh, I would also like to raise uh, the Enough campaigns um, uh, uh, work uh, on kleptocracy that they, you know, you mentioned that uh, this kleptocracy has a, a, a price. Uh, in the case of Sudan, uh, you know, they argue that uh, it's really uh, a, a fight over corruption uh, more than ethnic or uh, politics. Uh, and uh, there have been, you know, tens of thousands of people have died in Sudan. They're now coming out with a report on uh, the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is uh, basically saying the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have died in conflict uh, due to uh, fight over whether it's resources or, you know, the um, control over the kleptocracy. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's difficult to go against uh, uh, Putin, uh, but uh, some of these African dictators, I think, are a bit more vulnerable. Thank you, Jerry Hyman at the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm not sure this is a question or a request. Maybe it's a request, uh, Charles. And that is that, uh, you know, much of, uh, much of what we do turns out to be a balancing of goods versus other goods, evils versus other evils, what's more important, what's less important, and so on. Um, it seems to me that so far in the discussion, recognizing the concern and the outrage and so on and so forth and the potential consequences, one of the things that I think we've learned in a variety of areas in the last few years is that we better look at unintended consequences. If you had asked yourself about Iraq, you wouldn't have thought about the unintended, they didn't think about the unintended consequences. Similarly in Afghanistan, lots of other places, I realize this is not, doesn't rise to that, maybe doesn't rise to that level, but maybe it does. My question is really, of all the things that you discussed about with respect to remedies, they're mostly about transparency, it seems to me. Beneficial ownership, you should reveal beneficial ownership. You should expose uh, the kleptocrats. You should mobilize public opinion, et cetera. What, I'm not, what I don't know is, okay, th then what? Wh what are the consequences of doing that? What are the proposed remedies? And what are the consequences of those remedies, what, of those proposed remedies? Uh, Number one. Number two, be great if 
uh, a number of these kinds of panels, uh, I've gone to a number of them, talk to each other rather than just that across panels, rather just within them. So two days ago, I was on a, a panel on the rule of law and surveillance versus privacy. Every single member of the panel was a pro-privacy advocate. We gotta stop this surveillance, we gotta stop the government from looking, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here you have a case where privacy presumably would be made transparent. Things that were formerly private are now going to be more transparent. Be good to weigh these different values against one another. That's what I meant by the balance of you know, goods and, and versus other goods, evils versus other evils. So I guess my question, or maybe to you, Charles, is would it be possible for the kleptocracy initiative to put out other than, or in addition to transparency, what are the other proposed remedies, number one? Number two, what are the unintended consequences of tho pursuing those remedies? And number three, how do those weigh against other values? And I think uh, Mr. Firestone's named a couple of those, for example, free speech and, and so on and so forth. Balancing these things against one another is not so simple as to say we've got a, a bunch of bad kleptocrats and we need to do something about it. Well, what is it exactly that would be proposed to, to be done and what are the implications of doing this? Not a question, I guess, but we'll, 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 we'll take it as a question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Mark Meltzer. I'm with a journal called Providence. And actually, the question I have kind of ties into what the gentleman here was asking, uh, because I believe Charles Davidson mentioned earlier that um, he hadn't heard, or there aren't, you know, good arguments for shell companies or for secret and anonymous accounts. Um, I have heard some, and I think that some of the risks that were mentioned um, today and yesterday on the panel about kleptocracy kind of um, the risks kind of pale in comparison to some of the benefits. But one argument I have heard is about how dissident groups and opposition groups can use some of the secrecy in order to avoid the autocratic governments. Um, I don't know exactly what to think of that argument. I don't know how often that's actually used. And so my question specifically is, are there opposition groups or, or excuse me, opposition groups or dissidents who can use these organizations or, excuse me, these accounts um, and that w what's the benefit and cost to that? Uh, well, something that I've been thinking about as the, the sort of two points were, were outlined is that it, we, it's important to kind of zoom out and as Tom was saying, we need to really kind of tie things together and look things from the, the sort of um, the largest possible perspective. And, this issue of kleptocracy in the financial system is really part of a much larger issue within the financial system. You know, kleptocracy is one aspect of a broader crisis in a system which is giving us bubbles, which is giving us offshore, which is giving us, giving us derivatives and the real instability of that financial system, in particular in its relationship with states and the project of uh, the project of state or the project of statehood and how a relationship that off from the 1950s until the new millennium have been very re mutually reinforcing for western states and for the financial system has now appears to have uh, gone into gone into reverse and i think this trend that we've been seeing in, since the 1970s and in particular since the 1990s of states simply losing their ability to have the upper hand over capital to really be empowered over capital 
is the sort of uh, the big sort of root of a lot of these uh, issues, be it bubbles to river sieves or, or, or kleptocracy. One of the things that I'm very interested in is you look at it from a big kind of political science point of view is that state building was about the ability of, the, of power and political power to exert its control over financial power and that in a sense we're moving into a period of state unmaking as the states are undermined and uh, by their inability to have access to have power over capital. I, in terms of like how to sketch that relationship over the next 10, 20 years, one of the things that's very interesting in Britain, France and the United States is that the public won't accept cuts, even quite minimal cuts to what they perceive is their their democratic winnings, their democratic uh, democratic rights. Is that in the United Kingdom there have been there has been cuts to public services. Now under the new government, the consequences were so major that it's perceived that that is actually there's a limited capacity to cut. Same thing in France and also in the United States. There's uh, you see the same thing kind of swilling around. Uh, the sort of uh, Sanders campaign and the, the Trump campaign. And it'd be, I'm just trying to, I think that those, those are sort of the principles we're going to have to sort of think about in sort of shaping the, the decades ahead, these sort of, uh, this, tra this relationship between the sort of no longer mutually reinforcing statehood and financial uh, patterns and this, this issue, which is that uh, the public even though like political institutions and politicians may not, the public actually has very clear red lines in, uh, in terms of what it'll accept and not accept. Yeah, I'll just want to make a quick comment on both of those questions. Then, um, unfortunately, I have to leave. I feel horrible. I feel horribly rude coming in late and leaving early. But um, I figured it's such an interesting topic. I figured I'd rather be here just for an hour than not come at all because it is such an important um, it is such an important discussion. Your point about you know the the flip side of this is a really good one. If you talk to Swiss bankers, as I have done on many occasions, they will always tell you, "Oh, the reason we have secrecy was to help Jews protect their money from the Nazis." And the, most of our clients, you know, are trying to you know. Protect protect their assets from people who want to steal it or from, you know, it's a family situation, um, they don't trust their relatives, et cetera, et cetera. And if I talk to a lot of Russian business people and they say, you know, the reason we have money in offshores is because the government is so corrupt, they'll come and steal it from us. So we have to do this. And of course, there's the political point that you make that increased transparency could make it easier for authoritarian governments to get at foreign funding of NGOs and things like, and things like that. So there is a flip side to it. And I think that the, but, the problem is with everything in life is that these, you know, justifications can be easily abused by people who are want to use these um, these good institutions for nefarious ends. So the task is really to develop laws and regulations that allow people who want to use these uh, structures for legitimate reasons to do so, but simultaneously allow us to identify those who are abusing them. That's the situation with every law that's ever passed. It has to be tailored um, in a uh, subtle and nuanced way. And that's why, and the way to get there, of course, is by discussing all of this and having people point out the pros and cons of everything and figuring out exactly what the, um, what the situation is so that any legislation that is passed takes into account all of um, all of these aspects. And that's exactly why I think, you know, and that goes to the previous point about the flip side of these things, the privacy side, that has to be taken into account. And the way to get there is by having exactly the kind of discussions that uh, we're having today. These were Swiss bankers with a lot of chutzpah. 
Chutzpah, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not a word they would use, yeah. but an appropriate it word. It turns yeah. out they were also willing to, <laughs> to hide yeah. Nazi gold from the Jews that they took it from. There is that aspect. Can I make a, a final, I, I assume we're, we're making final points? Or? Um, I, I'm very um, taken by the, in, in this discussion, by the two separate kind of photographic images. One is the image of post-war leaders, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin meeting to think about the division of the world, um, and at least some kind of global compact. And we all can see that picture, whether it's Yalta or Tehran or wherever. And then the picture that came out two weeks ago, a, a, new, a new threesome, Aliyev, Putin, and Erdogan. And we need to think about these kleptocracies as an emerging international system allied with African kleptocracies. Of course, since it's not just uh, the West that's enabling, it's also now become an international system. And it's not accidental that uh, Putin is uh, going to have um, military um, maneuvers in El Alamein, of all places, in northern Egypt. Um, so I, I think that there, that there is this real moment, and we, we sometimes I think we, we know that national security and kleptocracy are linked, but we underestimate that uh, possible moment. And so think about it perhaps in this way. Remember the Berlin crisis. And a large part of that Berlin crisis wa was started because of the um, flooding of the Western sector with all kinds of counterfeit, uh, the, 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 the potential inability to establish the power and legal basis of the dollar, of a currency. The institutions of the West that were being uh, applied in the Western sector we're at risk of being completely overrun by new Soviet surrounding um, institutions, m most of which were not very s socialist. And the decision was taken to close off the Western sector and to, to have an airlift. And th there may come a point when a, when a virtual airlift of the Western financial system may be possible. But how would we do it? <laughs> how, how would we actually close off? How, how would we allow our system to get to the point where we would have to close off our sector? This is because who, who's going to run the airlift? Who's going to run the airlift? Mm. And that, I think, is you know where the, the, the link back to Kennan comes in. Let us not forget that Kennan was completely ignored in Washington. <laughs> he was, you know, he came back, he didn't stay on as ambassador, he, he lived a lonely life first in the Naval War College and then in Princeton, and, and he was loved by the academics and every journalist, but nobody in, in D.C. listened to him whatsoever. So I, I, I think that there is this kind of, I mean, I, I hate to go back to 48, but boy, we need to do something to secure the sanctity of our financial system. Mm. I, uh, I guess I should respond to Gerald Hyman's question about 
um, the consequences, uh, well, unintended consequences of proposed remedies, which sort of bleeds into the question about uh, privacy. Um, and uh, there, um, I mean, this, this is a question that's come up for years and years as I've, I've worked on these issues. And it's a bit, I mean, uh, prima facie, such a question is a bit of a suggestion for doing nothing. In other words, whatever we're going to do is going to have unintended consequences, so um, uh, let's, let's not do anything. I think at this point, this issue has become so dangerous and such an issue of national security that those concerned about unintended consequences of proposed policies need to propose counter policies. In other words, what would you do about the national security issues that, um, uh, that are, are posed here? And that's part of a democratic process. So it's not a legitimate debating point to simply throw that on someone who's proposing to actually do something about it. What's your counter proposal? Um, and the privacy issue is something that's been a around a long time. Um, obviously, nobody wants to live in a 1984 Orwellian nightmare. And so we have to balance that with the severity of the threats that privacy, uh, well, lack of privacy provides. Now, the corporation, the anonymous corporation, the Shell Corporation, was never, when corporations were designed, this, this was never an associated intent. It was, it was always... Uh, originated until quite recently uh, was a, an, an entity that was uh, provided limited liability. Uh, and actually, uh, and the, the secrecy was never supposed to be part of, part of this from a societal standpoint. And, and therefore, removing that, I don't see that as any egregious invasion of, of privacy. And people can do stuff uh, without limited liability that remains, um, that remains uh, private. If, if I could, I'd like to try and answer your, your question about the, this low-hanging fruit, because I, I, I do think you're right that we do see a large amount of people, we can, you know, every, every year, how many of them come to the U.S.? Probably a pretty large amount. Every year, how many of these guys are taking vacations in France or going to Switzerland or um, visiting their ill-gotten houses in London? A very large amount, but I think you get back to, unfortunately, the same question that I, you know, that, that Ben asked earlier, which is why don't these governments do anything about it? And it's because when the son of the the head of the Democratic Republic of Congo or, or the the nephew of whichever corrupt leader it is comes to town, there's always going to be a certain faction within the government that's going to say, no, we need to leave these guys alone because we have X, Y, and Z agreement riding on our relationship with his uncle, with his father, with his mother. And too many times and too often, political considerations are subordinated, are, are, are made sort of higher than these kleptocratic ones, when I think we should actually be looking at the larger picture. Um, there have been certain cases, and the one that comes to mind is probably the um, arrest and conviction of Pablo Lazarenko, the former Ukrainian prime minister, was arrested in the U.S. and tried in the U.S. and spent time in prison in the U.S. Um, but again, that in large part happened because there were people within his own country in Ukraine who had it out for him and who had sent the kind of documents that we needed to actually um, put in a case against him. So when you have 
examples to take another Ukrainian situation. Um, recently, they've been trying, the U.S. has been trying to get uh, Dmitry Firtash extradited from Austria. And there's been certain cases where the, the Austrian government has asked the Ukrainian government for certain documents, and they haven't provided them within a year. Because again, there is some kind of internal political, whether it's political inertia, whether it's a desire, uh, to, you know, friends within the government of Ukraine who are trying to not get him extradited. Unfortunately, just so much of this is dependent on what happens, as Tom said, in the in the home country. And if you can't have, you can't get your hands on the material, you can't get your hands on the evidence. That coupled with the kind of political pushback from within our own countries is almost always a losing proposition, sadly. Well, so one kind of um, uh, one closing statement about like the nature of campaigns is you have to repeat, 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 repeat yourself. And one of the things about sort of Brexit was that you know, they spent 20 years preparing that campaign, you know, through village hall after village hall, through think tanks, you know, slowly trying to pinpoint the right committees within the Conservative Party, getting taking any chance to run and to get their allies into uh, into Parliament. And as sort of Ni Nigel Farage uh, joked, um, you know, when you've said a million times Britain needs a points-based Australian immigration system, people are only just uh, starting to, to listen to you. So just as bad ideas can become uh, immensely, can fight, can take off, I think the same thing works for, for good ideas uh, as well. So I would hope that we keep, keep repeating ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you all for coming, and, and thank you, Ben. Well, thank you, Charles. Thank you.